Today's TribCast is brought to you by Texas State Technical College's money-back guarantee program reinforces our commitment to prepare and place highly skilled, technically competent students in the workforce. Learn more at tstc.edu. And Austin Community Foundation mobilizes ideas and resources to address the biggest issues in Central Texas. Learn more at austincf.org slash giveback. Hello and welcome to the Texas Tribune Tribcast for July 28th, 2023. My name is Matthew Watkins, Managing Editor for News at the Tribune. And this week, we're going to be talking about two topics. One, the legal fight at the border between the Biden administration and the Abbott administration over floating buoys and other things along those lines for border security measures. And also the removal of 500,000 Texans from the state Medicaid rules. And we're going to start with Medicaid. For three years during the coronavirus pandemic, anyone who is receiving Medicaid in Texas and across the country was allowed to stay on the rolls, even without filing for renewal, and even if they became no longer eligible under normal circumstances. But in April, that started to change. And since then, Texas has removed 500,000 people from the rolls uh, since April. That means half a million people, many of them children, have lost access to health coverage. Many of them, according to experts, don't even know that their coverage has ended yet. Uh, joining us today to discuss this is Neil Mbora, who covers uh, disability issues for the Tribune and has been tracking this story. Hey, Neil, and thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you. All right, so I want to talk with, instead of a big picture question, with a sort of more narrow question and ask about one particular family that you've written about. That's the family of Jody White's, which lost coverage this summer. Tell me a little bit about Jody and her family and kind of what has happened to them in recent weeks and months. Yeah, so the Whites are a family in New Braunfels who have five kids, and their second youngest, Amelia, is a medically complex kid. She has heart defects, she has cerebral palsy and autism, and she also gets most of her food through a, gastro- a gastrostomy tube uh, because she isn't able to digest through her mouth. And when they lost coverage, they lost the ability to access all of her treatments to do with every single one of her diagnoses. So that means she doesn't have access to pump bags or syringes for that tube she eats through. She doesn't have oxygen tanks anymore because the insurance company came and took that away. And she used to have a home health nurse that has been with her for the past three years, taking care of her, monitoring her vitals, even going to school with her. Um, And this nurse is the one who caught her seizures when she started having seizures earlier this year. Mm. Um, And now the nurse can't see her anymore. So she hasn't been able to go any follow up doctor's appointments with any specialists or any doctors. um, And her parents are just hoping that an emergency doesn't happen. Otherwise, they're going to have to go to a hospital, take on a hefty bill, hopefully, if the hospital is willing to treat them without insurance. Mm -hmm. Okay, okay. So tell us a little bit about how you know, this family, but also just other people who are among this 500,000, how are they getting removed? What is the process the state is going through in order to do this? So the process uh, seems to be a little bit messy. 
Um, they hired on a lot more people to HHSC ahead of the beginning of this unwinding to try and handle the volume of everything that was going to happen. But it seems that some of the people they hired, according to advocacy groups, uh, are not quite experts in all of the methods of approving and denying someone. So a lot of families have talked about getting on the phone with HHSC and being told conflicting information every time they call. Um, people are getting removed quite a few because of procedural procedural errors. So people who sent in their applications a day late or people who weren't able to provide every piece of documentation about their jobs for the past three years. Um, things to do with language barriers where they got their renewal packets in the mail that were not in the language that is their primary language. Just different things like that where people have not been contacted and didn't know to submit a renewal application and were removed as a result of that. So that is a big part of it. And, you know, I, I, we should step back a little bit here and, and, and make clear to be fair to the state of Texas, right? This isn't just necessarily a decision where it's like, we want to kick 500,000 people off the rules. There was this decision made by the federal government, I believe, you know, due to the pandemic and all the challenges with communication and, you know, just life challenges that were people were facing to keep people on during those times, even if they weren't necessarily kept on for those three years. We knew this was coming. It wasn't necessarily a step that, you know, Texas has made this kind of dramatic decision to do so. But that being said, I mean, it sounds like what you were hearing from folks is that, you know, Maybe Texas doesn't have much of a choice as to whether to go through this process, but the process itself is maybe not going as smoothly as some would have liked to have seen. Is that right? I think that's exactly right. I think there have always been issues with Medicaid in Texas and other states as they go through this process, but they have become much more exacerbated by the volume of work they've needed to accomplish since the federal government you know, pulled back those restrictions. And uh, it seems that there are issues with technology, uh, the IT system that the commission is using, uh, everything seems to be a little less organized than maybe it could have been, especially as they knew it was coming. Sure, sure. And so one thing that I'm wondering about, we're trying to get an answer out is, you know, who are these 500,000 people? What are you hearing from the state about kind of the, you know, the, the makeup of this group? Yeah, so uh, the state hasn't released exact numbers on the demographics of this group yet, but according to advocacy groups, and just based on what we know about who uses Medicaid in Texas, it is likely that a lot of these people are children. Um, mm -hmm. It's mainly kids who are on Medicaid, using Medicaid, like Amelia in the White's family. And it seems that a lot of them are losing coverage because of this removal process. Um, of course, the state intended to try and remove people who were ineligible. That is the intention. So kids who might've aged out of the program and are 18 older now. Um, but besides kids, it's also women who are either pregnant mothers who have been removed er erroneously or people who were pregnant at some point were able to get on Medicaid, weren't removed until now or past their pregnancies. Um, and lastly, there are some disabled adults who still use Medicaid as well. You had a number in your most recent story that ran today about an estimate of, of maybe 80,000 people who were on, who were removed, but maybe shouldn't have. What's what's happening with that group? 
Yeah. Um, there was a letter anonymous, anonymously sent uh, to the leaders of the Health and Human Services Commission from uh, from employees, people who said they were employees, uh, saying that 80,000 people were removed erroneously. Uh, they didn't expand on that in the letter what that meant. And I wasn't able to get the Health and Human Services Commission to confirm or deny whether that number was true. But they did say that they were aware of some cases where people were moved erroneously. So, uh, all right. Well, thank you. So, uh, so then, one thing I wanted to ask about this is, of course, Texas is one of a small handful of states that has not expanded Medicaid. You know, in in response to the Affordable Care Act, there have been various efforts to do this over the years. Many Republican-led states have chosen to do this, despite kind of early resistance to the Affordable Care Act and things like that. But what that has created in Texas, you know, even before this pandemic hit and we, before this kind of mass removal from the rolls, was a situation where there were people who maybe aren't eligible for Medicaid, but maybe we didn't qualify for subsidies or couldn't afford health insurance on the Affordable Care Act market. How much is that factoring into play here? Do we know in terms of, of, of who is getting removed and who's not? I think a lot of people who are getting removed because they're now ineligible, maybe because of income limits, especially seeing as Texas has some of the most strict income limits, they're definitely being told to go look at marketplace plans and things like that. And uh, it seems like there is just going to be this big gap because Texas hasn't expanded Medicaid. There's going to be a lot of people who aren't able to afford those plans or get enough care that they need for their specific health needs under those plans, but they also won't be qualifying for Medicaid. So it is a place that people are being told to go, but it's not necessarily a place that will be helpful for them. Sure. What are you seeing from the community health clinics? I know you've spoken to some people who work in there, you know, people who are, it's their jobs to help people sign up for Medicaid or kind of weave this paperwork morass, but also might be the people who need to serve the people who have lost coverage. What is the experience that they're facing? What are they telling you? Well, right now they're saying that they've seen less of a surge of people than that you were expecting to see when mm -hmm. people first started getting removed from Medicaid. And the reason they gave was that it seems like a lot of people still don't know that they've lost coverage. And so they are really bracing for about back to school time because they assume that is when a lot of parents are going to start coming in to get their kids, you know, routine checkups, vaccinations, things that they need before school, um, physical so their kids can play sports. And they're going to be told when they're in the office to get services from these community health centers that they don't have insurance anymore. And of course, these places are required to serve people whether or not they have insurance. And that is what is helpful about them for these people. But uh, it is definitely going to be overwhelming for these community health centers. And they are waiting for that other shoe to drop. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're not getting the notifications that you need to renew your application or anything like that, you might not be getting the notification that you have been dropped from the rules. And if you don't need to go to a doctor or anything like that, you might not realize until the time comes. So, so interesting that, you know, maybe that 500,000 number, many people will discover it later on and things like that. So let's go back to the White's family. I mean, what are they doing? Where are they going to go from here? 
Yeah. So they are doing everything they can. Um, they have reached out to their local state representatives as well as the governor's office. Um, the mother, Jody Whites, has reapplied for Medicaid again, um, hoping that her new income information is going to qualify them. She's also applied for Medicaid buy-in coverage, which allows for slightly strict income limits. And other than that, she is just going back and forth with uh, the Health and Human Services Commission. Her daughter qualifies for a Medicaid waiver program, which should guarantee coverage. But uh, as you know, the wait lists for waiver programs are very, very long. And her daughter is on a 6,000 person list. So they don't think they're going to be able to get to that anytime soon. All right. Well, thank you for explaining this. Let's pause and hear a message from our sponsors. Texas Biomed pioneers and shares scientific breakthroughs that protect our communities. Health starts with science. Health starts at Texas Biomed. Visit txbiomed.org for more. And the Texas Tribune Speaker Bureau. Deliver Texas-sized insight at your next event with the Texas Tribune Speakers Bureau. Our reporters and editors are ready to bring your event to life with context and analysis only they can deliver. Book us at texastribune.org slash speakers. Okay, before we get started on our second segment, I'm joined by Matt Ewalt, our Director of Events and Live Journalism for the Tribune. Uh, the Tribune just recently this month announced 100 new speakers for the Texas Tribune Festival in September. Matt, what were some of the highlights of that list? Yeah, so these are you know, change makers who are, are driving innovation, um, lawmakers uh, making waves with, with new policies and industry leaders that are pushing the state forward. And some of those highlights uh, include uh, Representative Adam Kensinger, uh, Renu Couture, president of the University of Houston. Uh, we have the minority whip of the U.S. House of Representatives, Catherine Clark, and uh, James Beard award-winning Aaron Franklin, and, and many others. A hundred is a lot of names to uh, announce at one time, but it's a, an incredible uh, list to add to those we already had announced. Indeed, and it's um, always an exciting event, something that I really enjoy. Folks that like to hear about the topics that we talk about on the TripCast will, of course, hear many, many of those and with from, you know, moderators and panelists smarter than than the, the, the hosts you'll hear on the TripCast. <laughs> so what do people need to know if they want to buy a ticket, uh, participate in any kind of way? Look, it's, it's going to our site, uh, tribfest.org. And, and what you'll discover there, not only uh, you know, ways to buy tickets, finding out the kinds of um, uh, discounts we have uh, uh, for uh, educators and, and others, um, you know, but it's, it's an invitation to dig into our, our lineup of, of speakers. You know, uh, numbers don't tell the whole story. It's, it's thinking about the way in which these speakers are going to engage in conversation uh, across difference you know, with issues facing our state and our country. Uh, I just invite people uh, who are still looking uh, to to look at those look at those uh, speakers, find the names that you recognize and can't wait to hear, but but also those that may be unfamiliar uh, to you, the those that are focused on issues that are important to you, or or the opportunity to dig into ideas and experiences that that you know really challenge your own. Um, but the website has our most up-to-date announcements, uh, all sorts of information uh, about um, uh, about how the 
those three days are going to be uh, organized and, and what to expect. All right. So once again, that'll be on September 21st through 23rd. The website is tribfest.org. Thanks a lot, Matt. Thank you so much. On July 3rd, a trooper with the Texas Department of Public Safety wrote an email to a sergeant detailing a series of incidents during his work on Governor Greg Abbott's border security mission that he felt, quote, stepped over a line into the inhumane. He described being given orders to push people, including a four-year-old child, back into the Rio Grande, or his unit received those orders as they tried to enter America. People, including children and pregnant women, were getting tangled in razor wire, and migrants were getting injured as they tried to avoid barriers put in the water by the state. That letter, first reported by the Houston Chronicle, has drawn attention to the harsh tactics being used at the border. Um, those in particular, the border buoys being deployed in the Rio Grande have gained a lot of attention this month as Mexico and the U.S. government have both raised concerns about it. There's a couple lawsuits ongoing about those uh, individual buoys. Joining us to discuss this today is Odiel Garcia, our immigration reporter, who is in Eagle Pass and has just come back from the border where seeing some of these tactics in action. Thanks for joining us, Odiel. Thank you. So first of all, just tell us, you know, this is the first time we've talked. You you literally just got back to an Airbnb in, in Eagle Pass. So I, I'll be hearing it just as much as our listeners will, as kind of what you're seeing out there today, what the, what the scene is like down there. Just describe to us what's stood out to you in your reporting today. Right. So I'll start off with um, with what, what I saw yesterday, because um, I was here yesterday. I went to a pecan farm that's right up against the Rio Grande. Um, and the owner or the owners of the that pecan farm were telling me that they initially had agreed to put up a fence on the riverbank with the gate so they could access the river because it's it's part of their property. But things started escalating and DPS National Guard began to put wire uh, along the riverbank they, uh, and they shut down the gate. And even if they could, could uh, open up the gate through um, with the lock or with the key, there's just wire in front of that gate now. So they literally, these people lost access to part of the property. And the wife has been telling me that she's been helping some of the migrants who are struggling to get up to the riverbank because the wire's up against the riverbank and some of them are getting tangled. Some of them are struggling to get up. Um, and she said that at one point there was, a, there was an instance in which she yelled at DPS troopers on her property saying, are you going to help? And they responded, no, that they can't help. And she ended up helping the migrants and, uh, herself. She said that she was helping an eight month, uh, a woman who was eight months pregnant. Um, it's given her a lot of anxiety. She says that she goes to bed wondering, like, having dreams of, of some of these cases in which she has found herself to be a human, humanitarian. Uh, so that's one scene, right? Today, I just came back from Piedras Negras, which is right across from Eagle Pass. Uh, I went to a shelter there uh, where a couple hundred uh, migrants are there. Most of them are waiting for uh, to get an appointment with uh, CBP, Customs and Border Prote Protection, to be able to enter the country legally. But they're get they're growing they're growing desperate. Some of them have been waiting there for two three months. Other people have been waiting up to six months. 
uh, I spoke to an immigration attorney who works at the shelter and she was telling me that, you know, she tries to help as much as she can, but, you know, she can only do so much because at the end of the day, the people who have the power are on the U.S. side. It's immigration. And mm -hmm. so, you know, she advises, she consults with the with the migrants and, you know, she doesn't want them to cross illegally, particularly now, because a lot of them are getting injured. Uh, she told me of an example of which uh, parents with their five-year-old uh, boy, their five-year-old son, and uh, another boy who was a little older, swam across the river. The five-year-old boy got entangled in the wire, had his one of his arms all cut up, and National Guard nor DPS offered any help. Um, they just didn't offer anything. They saw this unfold. The parents got worried and they didn't see anyone coming to the rescue. So they swam back with the boy and had to get treated at the shelter by volunteers. Uh, so, you know, th that's what's been going on. Um, migrants have been telling me, you know, they don't want to get tangled into the wire. Um, but ultimately, the lawyer told me, you know, this is only going to last so so long, this this deterrence policy, because she's she's sensing that migrants are growing desperate and they're waiting patiently, but their patience are going to is going to run out pretty soon. Well, yeah, that, that touches on one of the things I wanted to ask you about, because when you wrote a story about that, that letter that I mentioned up at the top of this segment, you quoted Travis Considine, a spokesman for DPS. DPS, of course, one of the main agencies in Abbott's kind of border uh, security initiatives, saying, you know, the, that they were investigating that letter, but also saying, you know, that troopers do everything possible to deter them, the migrants, from risking their lives in the first place. Other, In other words, the idea here is, is, is yes, that some of these things might be dangerous and could cause harm. And the aim here is to keep them from crossing over in the first place, which can be dangerous in a lot of different ways in the heat of Texas and all those kinds of things. You know, it did make me think, of course, it's a dangerous journey to get to the border. And you see, you know, many of these migrants are passing through places like the Darien Gap, where there is, you know, great danger to their lives and everything like that. I mean, how effective is this? Is this is this something that is actually convincing people to rethink crossing the border, or is it just kind of one more risk piled on to many risks that they're taking to get here? Yes and no. I think that for some, it, it is working. Someone uh, I spoke to a migrant at the shelter and told he told me that um, he had already crossed uh, uh, from Piedras Negras into Eagle Pass. But he went through an area of Eagle Pass where um, there wasn't any wire yet. Um, he got picked up when he crossed. Uh, he got picked up by Border Patrol and was eventually deported to Mexico City. And he made his way back to uh, Piedras Negras. And I asked him, are you going to try again? He said, well, not with all that wire right now. He goes, imagine getting tangled there. I don't want to go through that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there are no migrants crossing. Um, when I was at the uh, at the farm yesterday, I saw a group of about 20 people uh, that included uh, children, boys and girls, uh, ranging from anywhere from five years old to what I presume was a teenager with parents and mothers. And they they couldn't get across onto the, uh, onto, uh, the riverbank because of all this wire. So they were made to walk about three miles 
to the other side. They were being funneled onto the other side where there was an opening. So there are migrants crossing. And, and I saw, uh, like I said, this group about 20 people crossing. Um, I didn't get a chance to talk to them because, I, like I said, they're being picked up by National Guard. And so um, that area was closed off from, from me. And it's also closed off uh, from the, the property owner. And that's what uh, annoys her, too, is that she can't access her own property. But the point to answer your question is, yes, it is working for some. Some don't want to, as this migrant told me, we, I don't want to cross and get injured. But at the same time, I saw a group of parents with their children crossing yesterday. And one thing you have mentioned in your reporting is that the property owners in many cases don't have a choice here, right? Because Governor Abbott has invoked kind of an emergency around the border they have the ability to place some of this wire on the property of people, individuals who may not necessarily want it on their land, or in some cases have asked for it to be removed and, and have been denied that opportunity. One thing that I am kind of struggling to wrap my head around is how much of this is a escalation, an escalation of deterrent policies along the border or how much of this is just renewed attention in part due to this letter in part due to you know just this kind of focus on texas's politics policies and 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 things can sometimes be cyclical how how different is it now than say it was a few months ago or or years ago yeah i mean i think some of the context here is uh it's good to remember ever since biden came into uh this new administration came into office. Uh, Texas Attorney General has filed um, a, a few, a couple dozen lawsuits against the Biden administration. Many of them are about uh, attack, uh, attacking the Biden administration's immigration policies. So that there's been an ongoing legal fight. And if you recall, this was what two years ago when Governor Abbott uh, ordered that. Uh, DPS arrest any anyone who was transporting migrants uh, from the border into the interior. Um, the DOJ sued and got an injunction on that, and uh, eventually that order never went into effect. Um, and uh, at last last time I checked, that lawsuit is still pending. Um, and this is the second time, at least the second time, that the DOJ has sued the. Uh, uh, has sued Abbott or Texas over an immigration order or, or an immigration policy. I think what's a little different uh, from, you know, what's been going on the past few months or even that first lawsuit I uh, first mentioned is that I think that letter that that DPS trooper had written and became public really put an attention put attention on the on the human cost of what these policies are 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 uh, causing. We're talking about pregnant woman. Uh, there was a case of a pregnant woman having a miscarriage while she was entangled in in, in the wire, um, or you know, the, the as the email said, uh, pushing a group of migrants and back into the Rio Grande when she included uh, children. Um, you know, keep in mind that earlier this year we wrote a story about the high number of bodies being found on uh, in the river. On the on the riverbank of uh, the American side, and Eagle Pass and Maverick County didn't have any space for these bodies. So what they ended up doing is just burying them before they could be identified or 
being or contacting their family members. And so what advocates are saying now is, you know, there's already an issue of drownings happening on the Rio Grande with these buoys, with the uh, with the wire and what's supposedly ordering migrants getting pushed back into the water. All it's going to do is cause more deaths. And what the, I think what that email showed was, yes, it brought renewed attention, but it, it, it it's it's bringing attention to the human cost of these policies. So what are Abbott and DPS saying about those concerns being raised? They denied everything that was in that uh, in that email. They said that there was no orders to deny water. Uh, there was no orders to push migrants back and that any migrants who are injured, that they take care of them. Um, so that's that's their stance uh, on it. So they have opened up an, an investigation to find out whether these allegations are true or not. Right. And basically whether this is a a rogue employee telling them to do something against policy, which I guess, if true, is what DPS is saying, what actually happened here. I mean, we've also heard from Abbott, you know, the the arguments of, you know, this is the result of a, a lawless border um, allowed by the Biden administration and, and, and the problems that have arisen. But I mean, one thing that I think people have noted in recent weeks is, you know, many of us uh, expected kind of a new surge of migrants to arrive at the border with the lifting of Title 42 uh, this summer. It seems as though that that has not at least so far happened and that, in fact, you know, uh, encounters, uh, CBP encounters with migrants at the border have dropped sharply in the last few weeks and months. Any ideas to why that is or what's 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 happening there? Right. Uh, the Biden administration wants to take a lot of credit for that and, because they've implemented policies that they said have reduced uh, the number of migrant apprehensions on the border. Um, just to go through a few of them, uh, they they had this app already in place, but they've opened up the app known as CBP-1 to asylum seekers to make appointments uh, to be able to uh, turn themselves in or make an appointment with the Customs and Border Prote Protection Officer to be able to start an asylum process. Um, there was also, they created uh, programs for particularly Haitians and Cuban Cubans and I believe Venezuelans, I hope I'm not mistaken, to be able to apply for asylum from their home countries if as long as they have a sponsor or financial support in the U.S., um, Canada and Spain ha have also agreed, uh, got, in got into a partnership with the U.S. to be able to take in some asylum seekers from uh, Central and South America. Um, but there's a, a specific rule that the Biden administration is saying has been the biggest, has had the biggest effect. And that is a, a, what's known as a third country rule. And it, what it basically says, it is telling migrants that in order to apply for asylum in the U.S., they need to have applied for asylum in a third country. So, mm -hmm. for example, let's say a Venezuelan wants to come to the U.S., uh, but on his, on his or her way to the U.S., they end up in uh, Mexico. And they, uh, the rule says that they should have asked for asylum in Mexico. And if they get denied, then they could ask for asylum in the U.S., um, if they don't apply for asylum in another country before coming to the uh, to the U.S., they could be denied asylum in the U.S. altogether. 
Um, and keep in mind that this rule is very similar, if not exactly the same, to what the Trump administration had proposed. And that rule was struck down by a federal judge uh, under the Trump administration. And this uh, the same judge struck down that rule under the Biden administration. Uh, the rule is still in effect. Uh, uh, the judge has given the Biden administration two weeks, but uh, a, a district judge has ruled that that rule is, is illegal. So like I said, the Biden administration has credited that rule as the reason why there's a, low, uh, a lower number of apprehensions at the border. But with it being considered illegal, you know, we could expect people, experts are saying, well, we could expect more people to cross. And then, of course, we also have the deployment of these buoys um, in the Rio Grande that has been a, another big topic. This was an idea that was kind of floated around and discussed during the Trump administration and never ended up happening with the federal government. Abbott deciding to do it on his own um, uh, or, or Texas doing it on its own as well. That has, of course, become a source of legal conflict with the you know, it's sort of a reversal, right? The federal government suing the state over immigration policies as opposed to what we have normally been seeing. That lawsuit pending, the the, the government asking um, uh, a judge essentially to order Texas to remove those buoys. In that document, I, you know, you and I both found that interesting. Some, uh, some claims from, you know, diplomats in the State Department arguing that this is possibly harming relations with Mexico and, and possibly violating some treaties that the U.S. has with Mexico. Did you see those buoys or what are, what are you seeing the impact of those being on, on the river? Yeah, so keep in mind that um, the Texas-Mexico border is about 1,200 miles long. Mm -hmm. The buoys only cover about a thousand feet and mm -hmm. can only from the American side, you can only see them from this private property that I mentioned earlier from this farm. You'd have to go to the American side to be able to uh, uh, see them without the, permission, the get, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Without having to get onto private property. Um, yes, so I've seen them. Uh, I didn't see anyone crossing or attempting to cross them. It's really easy to swim around them. Yeah. Um, there's it doesn't have any effect other than you just have to walk. A quarter of a mile left or right um so um you know you brought up some of the some of the some of the characters who are against this um you know the doj sued mexican diplomats are complaining about it too uh the argument that uh doj is making is that this is a, fe a federal land it's a federal border and in order to have Texas to have done this, they needed the federal uh, federal government's permission to do so. Um, and anytime the federal government does any sort of uh, high stakes action at the border, they they communicated with Mexico to an extent. You know, we're going to do this, or we're going to add a wall. That way, Mexico is prepared to know what's going to happen in case they need to respond to a situation with migrants. Um, in this case, Mexico, what it, it what they're worried about is that it's going to uh, affect the public safety of some of the migrants, and it may force some of those migrants to have to come back to Mexico, and Mexico now has to deal with those injuries to the migrants. Uh, as far as we know, that hasn't happened, but that is a concern. I think another concern that we haven't talked about but uh, should be talked about is 
the env environmental consequences mm. of this. Um, you know, there's uh, the river for a lot of people here is 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 their livelihood, right? That's where Eagle Pass and in some cases uh, uh, some of the Mexican border towns get their water from. That's their water resource. Um, getting into the river itself is not illegal. Um, but with so much militarization around it, it's become taboo to get into the river. I mean, people go into the river to swim, to fish, uh, to kayak, to canoe, uh, both on the Mexican and the U.S. side. What's illegal is stepping on the other side without permission. But the the river is fair game and has been used for recreational reasons. And there's uh, wildlife there that environmentalists are concerned because there's so much wire there's uh, these other elements there that are scaring off the wildlife. And in some cases, they had to raise some some of the uh, some of what they're they're called islands in the river. Uh, um, um, they have to raise that to be able to put some of the buoys in there. And so that's what environmentalists are worried about is it's killing off the wildlife, but it's also scaring off people who use the river for recreational reasons. Well, thank you for that explanation. Thank you for joining us. Uriel uh, will be having some dispatches on the, on our website on this uh, likely next week. So keep an eye on texastribune.org for that. Thank you for joining us, Uriel. And thank you to our producer, Todd, and to our sponsors, Texas State Technical College, Austin Community Foundation, Texas Biomed, and the Texas Tribune Speakers Bureau. We'll talk to you next week. We have a favor to ask. Would you go to texastribune.org slash survey to take a five-minute listener survey? This is the best way for Texas Tribune journalists to know what works and what doesn't for our podcasts. The link again is texastribune.org slash survey. We appreciate your feedback. Hear from lawmakers and policy leaders, including Ruben Gallego, Evelyn Farkas, Phil King, Lena Hidalgo, Brad Raffensperger, Laura Collins, and many others at the 2023 Texas Tribune Festival, happening September 21st through the 23rd in Austin. 100 newly announced speakers join an already stellar lineup who will debate new ideas and take on the big issues that matter to Texans and the nation. Learn more at tribfest.org.